Welcome to the Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is episode 12, Gunpowder Empires. It is still early February 1637, and our voyagers are still in the city of Shimaki, just a few days by horseback from where they were shipwrecked on the Caspian Sea. And if you've been with us for the previous 11 episodes, you might have presumed that they are still consuming truly prodigious amounts of alcohol. They have, in fact, been drinking their way across two continents, carrying barrels of the stuff by land, river, and sea. Bottles and casks are frequently given and received as gifts, and alcohol in various forms is always included in the supplies provided by their hosts. But they've been in Shimaki for two months. Provisions of both food and drink are no longer a problem, and our secretary, Adam Hilarius, tells us that 22 of his companions are in bed with burning fevers, caused by the abundant drinking of wine, after the much water they had been forced to drink before. You will remember from episode 9 that the Caspian shipwreck deprived them of all their provisions, and that they had been forced to eat moldy scraps of food, drink water from a small stream, and burn their ship for firewood. Here in Shimaki, they drink so much of Persia's very good but strong wine that the ambassadors were forced to forbid the use thereof by a very strict order. Thanks to God and a good physician, no one dies. A Persian tale says wine was first discovered by a woman in the harem of King Jamshid, who ruled several thousand years before the birth of Christ, and was very fond of grapes. When one harvest produced more than anyone could possibly eat, Jamshid ordered the excess grapes stored in jars in the cellar of the palace. Some months later, when the king called for the grapes, he was disappointed to discover that the jars contained a strange-tasting dark purple juice. He then sent them back to the cellar, labeled as poison. A lady of the harem, who had persistent migraines and preferred death to continual suffering, found the jars and drank some of the poison. She immediately began to feel better, but then grew drowsy and fell asleep. When she awoke the next morning, she told the king that his poison was not poison at all, but a pleasant and unusual drink. King Jamshid rechristened the mysterious beverage the delightful poison, and decreed that a share of grapes from every harvest should be preserved in exactly the same manner. As we discovered in episode 7, some archaeologists say that some form of wine production first began six to 8,000 years ago, in the region that includes Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and eastern Turkey, and each of those modern countries claims to be the birthplace of wine. The Epic of Gilgamesh, written 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia and considered to be the world's oldest literary work, says a woman named Siduri is the woman of the vine, the maker of wine. Beside the sea she lives, the woman of the vine, the maker of wine. Siduri sits in the garden at the edge of the sea, with the golden bowl and the golden vats that the gods gave her. She is covered with a veil, and where she sits she sees Gilgamesh coming towards her, wearing skins, the flesh of the gods in his body, but despair in his heart, and his face like the face of one who has made a long journey. 
Originally composed in Akkadian, the epic poem was translated into multiple ancient languages and passed down not only as literature, but also for educational purposes. Obviously, Olarius didn't know what illness the Germans suffered from, and neither do we, but we can probably be safe in blaming the water, not the wine. Although methods of improving the taste and odor of drinking water were recorded as early as 4000 BC, the existence of microorganisms was not properly documented until the 1670s. Ancient Sanskrit and Greek writings recommended treating visibly cloudy water by filtering through charcoal, exposing to sunlight, boiling, and straining. The Egyptians reportedly used the chemical alum as early as 1500 BC to cause suspended particles to settle out of water. Roman winemakers washed out their vats and vessels with water, scoured and dried them, and then fumigated them with myrrh, myrtle, bay, or rosemary. But even though Roman encyclopedist Marcus Terentius Varro theorized in 100 BC that disease was caused by invisible particles, the point of cleanliness was merely that the wine should not smell moldy or sour. It wasn't until the 1670s that Dutch cloth merchant Antony van Leeuwenhoek, whose hobby was lens grinding and making microscopes, properly described microbes from the guts of animals and teeth scrapings. He wrote of his findings to the British Royal Society, but the significance of microorganisms was not truly understood until the 18th century. At the end of February, the courier sent to the Shah a month earlier finally returns with orders approving a March 27 departure date for the German ambassadors. Valerius uses the extra month to continue his explorations of the city, and the next section of the book gives us the details. But first, they celebrate by going hunting, or, as our translator Davies puts it, this good news puts some of us into a humor to go a-hunting. The governor of Shimaki has other business, but provides his huntsmen, hounds, hawks, and a trained leopard for the hunting party. Although Alarius does not explain what he means by leopard, he is most likely referring to Panthera pardus tuliana, a subspecies of leopard that is native to Iran, Turkey, Afghanistan, and the Caucasus. He does tell us that the big cat, besides being excellently well taught, is as swift as a greyhound, captures all the rabbits he pursues, returns to the huntsman on command, and gives to the Germans all the satisfaction hunting could afford. A few days later, the governor provides a magnificent feast under a tent at the riverside. A young man in his twenties, presumably Persian, dances while playing two small cymbals, and a black Arabian man dances and leaps among the porcelain dishes of food so carefully that he breaks not a single plate. The governor announces he will demonstrate his skill with the bow by saying that once, when he was a younger man of 45 years, he cut a single hair with an arrow at a considerable distance, and that today he will make the attempt again. Valerius records the event. A single horsehair is tied to a Persian archer's thumb ring that is used to draw the bow. A young boy holds the weighted hair at a distance of more than six paces, and the governor cuts it with his arrow not once, but twice. Persian archers use a method of drawing the bowstring that is not common among European archers of the time. Instead of using the first three fingers, the method requires use of the thumb, 
and the ring, which might be made of bone, metal, or stone, makes for a smooth release. Called the Mongolian draw or the thumb draw, the method has several advantages for a mounted archer, and the armies of the Persians, Turks, and Mongolians depend heavily on cavalry and the short but powerful recurved bow. In the Mediterranean draw, a right-handed archer uses the first three fingers of the right hand to draw the string, and the arrow rests on the left side of the bow. This is fine for archers who fight on foot, but at full draw the arrow does not remain stable enough for an archer on horseback. In the Mongolian draw, a right-handed archer uses the thumb to draw the string, uses light pressure from the index finger on the arrow, and the arrow rests on the right side of the bow. This method is more difficult to master, but provides a highly stable firing platform. The bow can be tilted to any angle necessary, and reloading is faster because the arrow at rest is on the same side of the bow as the archer's release hand. The governor also shoots an apple out of the air with a firelock musket. Also called a matchlock, this weapon preceded the flintlock and used a lit match, a piece of burning cord, to ignite the gunpowder. As you might imagine, the weapon did not perform well in the rain. We went forward in time in the previous episode to discuss the globe of Gottorp, built by Duke Frederick of Holstein after his ambassador's return from Persia. And this time we're jumping backward in time to discuss two aspects of how Shah Abbas I paved the way for our current voyage to Persia. Those two aspects are gunpowder and trade, and they are epitomized by two adventurous British brothers, Sir Anthony and Sir Robert Shirley. They are sometimes, but erroneously, credited with introducing artillery to Persia, and both tried, to greater or lesser degree, to assist Shah Abbas in opening up Persia's trade with the West. Gunpowder empires is a term coined by two University of Chicago historians that refers to three early modern Muslim empires— the Ottoman in Anatolia, the Safavid in Persia, and the Mughal in India, where centralized Islamic absolutism reached its height thanks to gunpowder and the fusion of spiritual and military authority. The dominant theory is thus one of technological determinism, that the rise of early modern empires occurred because smaller political entities were not wealthy enough to purchase the vast amounts of firepower that the centralized governments of kings and emperors could afford. Historians have described a vicious cycle. Only central governments of large states could afford large amounts of artillery and large armies. These enabled increased control over their border regions, or expansion at the expense of their weaker neighbors, which increased government tax revenues, enabling them to support more artillery and larger armies, which increased their centralization of control and tax revenues still further, and so on. We are, of course, on a journey to the capital city of the Safavid Empire, and the Shirley brothers were soldiers of fortune who traveled to Isfahan to persuade Shah Abbas to form a military alliance with the Christian kingdoms. A complete analysis of the theory of gunpowder empires is beyond us, but a brief soiree into the history of gunpowder is useful. According to research published by the Royal Asiatic Society in 2013, Gunpowder weapons were used in China as early as the late 10th and early 11th centuries, and guns firing solid projectiles date, with some uncertainty, to about 1200. So-called fire lances, tubes filled with an early form of gunpowder, iron filings, and pottery fragments, 
were recorded as early as 950 AD. Fully explosive gunpowder bombs were in use no later than 1160, most likely before the 1130s, and cast iron bombs were recorded by eyewitnesses in the year 1221. Cannons definitely existed before 1300. We mentioned Franciscan monk Plano Carpini in episode 6, who described the Mongol destruction of Kiev in 1240. He also said the Mongols used the melted fat of their human victims as a weapon, and wherever the fire falls on this fat, it is almost inextinguishable. Although that was a tall tale, the Mongols did use fire weapons fueled by saltpeter that kept burning even when doused with water. Gunpowder weapons were unknown in Russia or Europe at the time, and attempts to explain them included the melted human fat theory of Carpini and the charge that witchcraft enabled the Mongol victory over the Polish city of Lenica in 1241. According to the Polish account of the battle, the defenders did quite well at first, but were defeated by the arts of divination and witchcraft. Mongol warriors waved banners, said the chronicle, from which suddenly bursts a cloud with a foul smell that envelops the Poles and makes them all but faint, so they cannot fight. Unable to explain what caused the explosions or the foul smoke, the author said the Mongols used witchcraft but the weapons were clearly of the kind invented by the Chinese some 200 years before. The use of fire lances and catapults firing incendiary bombs also explains how Mongol armies were able to take more than a dozen walled Russian towns in a single winter campaign, and why those towns burned so fiercely. So the dominant theory is that the Mongols brought gunpowder from east to west, and that the Ottomans, Persians, and everyone else were thus forced to use firearms or be defeated. The Ottomans, of course, used siege cannons to deadly effect, using them to breach the previously impregnable walls of Constantinople in 1453. The siege of Vienna in 1529, which could have utterly altered the history of the West, failed in part because heavy rains caused the Ottomans to abandon much of its heavy artillery when it got stuck in the mud and more rain in October dampened much of their gunpowder. As we have noted in previous episodes, the Persians fought a lengthy war with the Ottomans beginning in 1518. The Sultan's failure to take Vienna in 1529 marked the end of Turkish expansion into Europe, and a renewed effort on the Persian front, in which Ottoman forces gained the upper hand through better integration of artillery. Although the Persian use of firearms had become widespread by the opening of the 17th century, killing at a distance did not match well with the tradition of up-close and personal combat. Mounted Persian soldiers thought the use of firearms beneath their dignity, and the heavy matchlock guns could not be wielded from horseback. Also, the country's rough terrain and the lack of navigable rivers worked against the easy transportation of heavy artillery. As an aside, many European soldiers in the early age of gunpowder held similar views about that accursed engine called the pistol, deeming it an unmanly means of combat. Which brings us to the Shirley brothers. When Sir Anthony and Sir Robert Shirley arrive in Persia in 1599, their first meeting with Shah Abbas occurs as he returns from an eastern campaign against the Uzbeks. According to Anthony, the Shah's soldiers carry no less than 24,000 
decapitated enemy heads on pikes. The brothers are charged with training the Persian army in the ways of the English militia and reforming the artillery, and their success enables a number of important victories against the Ottomans. But we will move on to the second aspect of their relationship with Persia, trade. In episode one, we discussed Europe's appetite for silk and how Shah Abbas wanted to enrich his empire by trading silk for European science and technology. The swashbuckling Shirley brothers may have come to Persia for military reasons, but when the older brother Anthony departs for Europe a year later, it is not as a military man, but as an ambassador of the Shah. Robert stays behind in Isfahan, either voluntarily or as a hostage, depending on which source one believes. The most persuasive telling is that Shah Abbas keeps Robert as a pawn, while sending Anthony to negotiate more military aid and expanded trade relations. But Anthony never returns to Persia, and Robert remains in service to the Shah for nine years, alternately as a palace favorite and a captive. He eventually marries a Circassian noblewoman, and Abbas sends them to Europe to find out what had happened to his brother, and to perform the same mission which Anthony had failed to accomplish. That is the thumbnail sketch, but the details are far more interesting. Unfortunately, the only sources we have are European, because in 1722, Afghan invaders destroy the Safavid archives by dumping them into the Zayanda River in Isfahan. Sir Anthony, born 1656, died 1638, is the second of three sons of Sir Thomas Shirley and Lady Anne Kemp. He is a keen judge of men, speaks several languages, has extensive military experience, and is able to endure the discomfort of extensive travels. But even his secretary describes him as fickle, corrupt, and mendacious, and a man who comes running whenever there is an offer of money. Modern biographers call him an inveterate and unscrupulous intriguer, a sententious hypocrite devoid of all real sentiment, or a complete opportunist, a man whose word could never be relied on, and whose personal dishonesty leaves us gasping. He also secretly marries a lady of Elizabeth's court, is imprisoned for a short time, and is thereafter exiled from England. Younger brother Sir Robert, 1581-1628, is, in some respects, the opposite of Anthony. Those who know him say he is a true gentleman with a great reputation, wise and discreet, and is judged both modest and brave in his speech, diet, and expenses. The eldest son is named after the father, and although he also figures in the legend of the Shirley brothers, he is not involved in the Persian escapades, and so we will not include him in our story. For his part, the father, Sir Thomas, is England's treasurer at war in the last decade of the 1500s, who also embezzles money earmarked for the war in the Low Countries. He is found out in 1597, imprisoned, and thus the entire household falls deeply in debt to Queen Elizabeth I. It is this catastrophe that launches Anthony and Robert on their journey to the East, which is but part of an international quest to restore the family's fortune and reputation. Persian adventure begins in Venice in 1598, where Anthony is awaiting military instructions from his patron, the Earl of Essex. A mission to the Italian city of Ferrara is cancelled when the political situation changes, and Anthony meets a Persian merchant who tells him that Shah Abbas is not only a gallant soldier, but also very bountiful and liberal to strangers. 
going to Isfahan, the merchant says, would be very good for his advancement. For their part, the Venetians most likely enlist Anthony to organize Persian attacks against the Portuguese, and to divert Persian trade from Portugal to Christendom, but in particular to Venice. So Anthony takes two dozen men, six of whom were classified as gentlemen, including his brother Robert, to Antioch. Disguised as merchants, the group makes its way overland through Aleppo and Babylon, and thus to Persia, where they meet the Shah in 1599. Six months later, Anthony has conned the Shah into making him an ambassador to the Holy Roman Emperor, to the Pope, the kings of Poland, Spain, France, England, and Scotland, and the Republic of Venice. To achieve this feat of persuasion, Anthony lies to Abbas, saying he is the cousin of King James of Scotland, and that all the kings of Christendom had made him ambassador to Persia, to negotiate an alliance against the Ottomans. As described by an eyewitness, one George Manwaring, the Shah kisses Anthony, calls him his brother, and declares that any Persian who objects will have his head cut off. Although Anthony is unaware of it, the ruse fits perfectly with the Shah's own plans to enlist Europe's aid against the Turks, efforts which had been started by his grandfather and great-grandfather. Yes, Anthony is a swindler, but he is also driven by his family's fall from grace, and in the 1600s, that is a situation with immense second-order consequences. When the father went to prison, no one could risk being associated with him or his sons in any way, and that fallout applied to more than family, friendships, and political relationships. In addition, neither tradesmen nor moneylenders could risk doing business with the family. Regaining financial credit first requires regaining reputational credit, and the Shirley brothers put everything on the line to make that happen. In 1600, Anthony returns to Europe by way of Russia. As it happens, the trip is similar to that of our own German ambassadors, but in reverse. And one of his first endeavors is a pamphlet about the journey published in London. The full title is, and I quote, A True Report of Sir Anthony Shirley's Journey Overland to Venice, from thence by sea to Antioch, Aleppo, and Babylon, and so to Kazwin in Persia, his entertainment there by the great Shah, his oration, his letters of credence to the Christian princes, and the privilege obtained of the great Shah for the quiet passage and traffic of all Christian merchants throughout his whole dominions. The pamphlet is banned by the crown not once but twice, and fails to reach its intended audience— influencers in Queen Elizabeth's court. But Shirley persists and follows up with another in 1601, and three more in 1607. Three more publications between 1609 and 1611 feature Sir Anthony in the title, and Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, when it is staged in 1601 or 1602, even gives one of the Shirley brothers a walk-on roll as fencer to the Shah. In pursuit of his family's reputation and financial restoration, Anthony claims to represent the Shah, the Holy Roman Emperor, the Pope, the King of Spain, and various English and Scottish dignitaries. He travels from Moscow to Prague in 1600, to Florence, Rome, and Venice in 1601, back to Prague in 1604, to Sicily, Prague, Morocco, Genoa, Alicante, Cadiz, and Morocco in 1605, to Lisbon and Madrid in 1606, to Naples, Livorno, Florence, Ferrara, and Prague in 1607, to Ferrara, Madrid, and Valladolid in 1608, to Alicante, Palermo, Trapani, Messina, Syracuse, Palermo, Naples, and back to Spain in 1610, 
where he remains for the rest of his life. There is much more to Anthony's story, but one final anecdote completes our portrait of him. In 1605, he stays in Morocco for five months and becomes quite the sensation. One source notes that he dressed magnificently, wearing not only the Order of St. Michael, which Henry IV had given him, but the regalia of the Orders of the Holy Ghost and of the Golden Fleece, which no one had given him. He is fabulously generous, at one point giving new turbans to five hundred soldiers sent to conduct him and his party to court. This largesse is paid for by two Spanish merchants, who compete to see who can lend him the most money. Likewise, sources say that Sir Anthony leaves a group of Jewish and Christian merchants with debts exceeding 300,000 florins. We've talked about the difficulty of currency conversion in previous episodes, but 300,000 gold florins sounds like a lot of debt, so let's try to figure out how much that might be worth today. The gold florin was recognized for centuries as a standard currency in Western Europe. Weighing 3.5 grams each, the florin was roughly equivalent to the Dutch guilder, which was a de facto reserve currency in Europe in the 17th century. In 1618, one guilder was worth 10.16 grams of silver. Today, 10 grams of silver is worth $7.50, so Sir Anthony Shirley fleeced those merchants for about $2.2 million. Before he leaves the country, Anthony accuses the Christians of defrauding Morocco of customs duties, a charge that ruins many of them. Meanwhile, as Anthony hornswoggles his way across Europe, 19-year-old Robert Shirley remains hostage to Shah Abbas along with a dozen others of the original Shirley crew. For several years, Robert advises on military reforms, oversees the production of artillery pieces, and fights against the Ottomans in various battles. Being an on-again-off-again hostage, Robert has nice things to say about his patron, describing Abbas as a most well-proportioned stature, strong and active, and the furniture of his mind, infinitely royal, wise, valiant, liberal, temperate, and merciful. In January 1608, the Catholic Bishop of Krakow, Poland, sends Abbas one of the great treasures of European art, the Bible of Louis IX, today known variously as the Crusader Bible, the Morgan Picture Bible, or the Abbas Bible. The gift was devised by Pope Clement VIII as part of his effort to bring Persia into the Christian fold, and although it might be a coincidence, the Shah immediately releases Robert from his semi-captivity, marries him off to a lady of the court, and sends him to Europe as an ambassador. Robert is married to a Christian Circassian noblewoman named Theresia Samsonia. They leave Isfahan in February 1608, well accompanied and furnished, in the usual fashion, and follow Anthony's route across the Caspian Sea and up the Volga to Muscovy. In what might be another coincidence, they spend the winter in Krakow, Poland. In Prague, Robert is appointed, like his brother before him, Knight of the Golden Spur. Depending on which source you read, he is also made a Count Palatine by Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II. They travel to Milan, Florence, and then Rome, where Pope Paul V makes him a Count of the Sacred Palace of the Lateran. Robert fulfills his duties as ambassador of Shah Abbas, telling the Pope of the good treatment Christians receive in Persia, and expressing hope that His Holiness would take steps to unite the Christian sovereigns against the Turks. 
The Shah's letter to the Pope asks the King of Poland to fight the Turks in Romania, the Emperor to fight them in Hungary, and the King of Spain to conquer Cyprus. None of that comes to pass. In Spain, Robert repeats the Shah's request that King Philip make war against the Turks, and adds his own suggestion that lucrative trade could be developed in Hormuz, and that a Spanish ambassador should go to Isfahan. The Shirleys reach London in August 1611. Queen Elizabeth had died in 1603, and King James I is less than enthusiastic about receiving Robert, partly because Robert dresses like a Persian, partly because he is an outlaw who has lived in Persia without royal permission, and partly because no one knows where his true allegiance lies. As noted by the Venetian ambassador to England, the king does not like this and makes a difficulty about receiving him as such on the grounds that he is an English subject and, what is more important, an outlaw. Robert is eventually granted two audiences with the king. At the first, he asks forgiveness for being in service to Shah Abbas and is pardoned. James says he is not pleased to see one of his subjects dressed as a Safavid courtier and asks Shirley to return dressed in English fashion. Robert obeys and meets with the king once more, but his mission is described by historians as a dismal failure. The Shah's proposed military campaigns against the Ottomans fail to materialize, and the East India Company refuses to hear his proposals for moving English trade centers to the Persian Gulf. Robert and Theresia return to Persia two more times, once in 1615, when they are almost killed by the sea and by Portuguese pirates, and again in 1627. Before leaving on the second trip, another Persian ambassador sent to London proclaims Shirley an imposter, and his credentials are forgeries. The Persian punches Shirley in the face, his son knocks Robert to the ground, and the Lord of Cleveland is forced to step in and prevent further violence. The incident may be a foreshadowing of what happens in 1628, when Shah Abbas denounces Robert and prosecutes Theresia for converting from Islam to Christianity as a child. Exhausted and weakened by his travels and travails, the Englishman, who was held captive and then gave thirty years of his life to the Shah, dies in Kazvin on July 13, 1628. Abbas dies less than a year later in January 1629. Theresia has most of her possessions stolen from her, serves three years in prison, and goes to Constantinople after her release. She moves to Rome in December 1634 and has Robert's remains buried there. She lives there until her death in 1668. As for Anthony, he survives his brother by a decade but lives in relative poverty in Granada until 1638, living under the assumed title of El Conde de l'Este and blaming his adopted homeland for not rewarding him sufficiently for his services to the crown. The Shirley brothers may have failed in their missions for the Shah who opened Persia to the west, but their adventures spurred the ambitions of others, and Abbas's vision of an expanded silk trade with Europe is what enticed Duke Frederick to approve Otto Brueggemann's harebrained scheme in 1633. And finally, I would be remiss if I did not mention that Robert did succeed to some degree in restoring the family's name. Theresia gave birth to their only child while in London in November 1611. King James's son, Prince Henry, agreed to christen the newborn, and Henry's mother, Anne of Denmark, was named godmother. 
the boy remained in England while his parents traveled, but died in childhood. In the next episode, one of the ambassadors orders cannons to be fired in anger at a rainstorm. The Germans sneak out of town before dawn, and they cross a bridge made of boats on the voyages and travels of the ambassadors. Thank you.